Yes. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Beyonce. Founding member of Destiny's Child, once known as Sasha Fierce, now referred to as Queen Bee, ruler of the Beehive, leader of the world's single ladies and independent women, the original influencer, overall pop culture icon. But you already knew all that. Most people do. After all, few musicians are as inescapable as the Beyonce. This story is about everything you don't know about Beyonce Giselle Knowles. It's about her achievements that have gone unnoticed, like her generous philanthropy and prosperous business ventures. It's about her few long-forgotten failures and her many heartbreaks. It's about the men who continue to receive credit for her musical acumen and fresh ideas. The very same men whose deception has often stolen her spotlight. This is about all the times Beyonce's hustle, clear vision, and shrewd entrepreneurship were overshadowed by misinformation, scandals, and senseless bad press. I'm Nikki Lynette, and this story is about a girl. Beyonce moved like clockwork. She ejected a CD from the stereo, tossed it into a jewel case and placed it into the reject pile, popped in a new disc to replace it, closed her eyes, gathered herself and her senses. Then she pressed play. And she waited. She crossed her fingers for an instrumental that would move her body and maybe even move her soul a little bit. Her group Destiny's Child made pure R&B. If an instrumental didn't have the right rhythm, then there was nothing right about it, period. The new melody trickling from the stereo this afternoon struck Beyonce immediately. The track dropped its beats in feisty little punches, 
It practically jingled while it stopped and started in jerky spurts. Beyonce set down the half-eaten bag of Cheetos in her lap. This could be gold, she thought. And Beyonce possessed the power to turn gold into platinum records. She began tinkering with lyrics on the spot. She weaved her words around notes from the song's harpsichord synthesizers and then dropped them on the downbeat. I don't think you do. Each line was like a snap of her fingers. Then they escalated to slap across the face. So you and me are through. In the background, the recording engineer just blinked at her. He had never heard that kind of syncopation used in a chorus before. When Beyonce finished writing down her experimental hook, she ejected the CD and placed it in the keeper pile. Another track down. Dozens more to go. The stack of instrumental submissions from producers towered in front of her like a mountain. Beyonce remained unbothered. It was nothing she couldn't climb. Hell, she had already climbed countless mountains to be here. In this seat at the infamous Sugar Hill Records in Houston, Texas, at just 17 years old, Beyonce boasted a remarkable sense of confidence for a young woman her age. It wasn't always that way. Tina and Matthew Knowles welcomed their first daughter, Beyonce Giselle Knowles, on September 4, 1981, in Houston, Texas. Her name was a tweaked version of her grandmother's French surname, Beyoncé. Beyoncé sounded fresh, unique, unlike anything people had ever heard before. From the start, Beyoncé was destined to stand out. In elementary school, standing out wasn't such a good thing. Other children made fun of Beyoncé's ears, which were bigger than average for a little girl. They taunted her about the color of her skin. Not because she was black, because she wasn't black enough. Her light skin made Beyonce an easy target for school bullies. All the teasing turned Beyonce shy. Then the kids bullied her for being shy. She just couldn't win at school. But she could win on stage. Little Beyonce Knowles was not your average pageant queen. She didn't enroll in beauty contests so she could simply smile and wave, posing like a budding Barbie doll. Beyonce was there to prove to the judges that she was the whole package. She started dance lessons at age seven and took to the stage like a second home. Eight-year-old Beyonce could comfortably lock eyes with her audience like she had known them longer than she had been alive. That always grabbed the judges' attention. Then her enunciation and crystal clear vocal tone would sell them on a high score. Pageants were Beyonce's place to shine, just like the trophy she brought home night after night. The intention was never to make Beyonce into a child superstar. Her parents just wanted her to be comfortable with herself on and off the stage. Beyonce was plenty comfortable now as she ad-libbed lyrics to the song that would become Bills, Bills, Bills at Sugar Hill Recording. Here she was, only 17 years old, writing one of Destiny's Child's biggest hits in one of Texas's most historic studios. Beyonce's age never stopped her from calling the shots. On records, 
Beyonce was just one of the voices in Destiny's Child. But in the studio, she became the voice. The person who taught Sugar Hill CEO Dan Workman a thing or two about R&B production techniques. The lyricist who looped her own harmonies in ways seasoned sound engineers had never heard before. The business-minded bandmate who would go on to fire Destiny's Child member Farrah Franklin when she couldn't be bothered to join the group for promotional work in Australia. Beyonce made that final phone call to Farrah from Los Angeles International Airport while the rest of the group waited to board their plane. This is a business, Beyonce told Farrah. Think like a businesswoman. Think smart. If you don't come on this trip, there's no way you can remain in this group. Farrah didn't budge, and Beyonce wasn't bluffing. May God bless you. Goodbye, she said before snapping her cell phone shut. Her words were few, but final. But this was all behind closed doors. In public, much of the credit for Destiny's Child's success went to their manager, Matthew Knowles, a.k.a. Beyonce's father. In reality, Matthew was late to the party. It was a big-hearted woman named Andretta Tillman who was the first person to invest in Destiny's Child way back in 1990 when they were a preteen group named Girls' Time. Andretta quickly became a fixture in the girls' development, both as a financial sponsor and a source of artistic guidance. She assumed the role of manager long before Matthew forced his foot through the door in 1992, when he approached her with a proposition. Matthew suggested he co-manage Girls' Time and split the managerial profits with Andretta, 50-50. Andretta was weary of the deal, but was more concerned about Matthew's threat. If he couldn't manage Girls' Time, he claimed he'd pull Beyonce out and take her talents elsewhere. Losing little Beyonce just wasn't an option. Andretta reluctantly welcomed Matthew on board. Matthew was eager to put in the work. He was so convinced that girls' time would blow up that he quit his job as a medical equipment salesman. He enrolled in courses in show business-related management at Houston Community College and studied Motown like a religion, taking notes on the success stories behind the Supremes and the Temptations. To his credit, Matthew Knowles did a lot of good for girls' time, and later, Destiny's Child, but he did a lot of damage, too. He often built the girls up by tearing them down. He made them sing and run at the same time, building up their stamina like a drill sergeant. He watched the girls' food intake, lest they, quote-unquote, ruin their shape. It made them anxious about what they ate, even when they had every reason to indulge and celebrate. If Matthew finds out about this food ruining our figures, he'll kill us. One of the young women commented as Destiny's Child stuffed their faces with oxtails, fried chicken, and mac and cheese upon the release of their debut album. Matthew would even count incorrect dance moves during the girls' performances and later remind them of every misstep as if he had no missteps of his own as their co-manager. These harsh critiques were coming from the same man who bungled a major record deal with Elektra Records. The girls signed a joint venture and production contract with Electra Entertainment Group under their CEO, Sylvia Rohn, in 1994. 
It was an exhilarating leap towards stardom, but it wasn't a guarantee. The group would have to record a handful of tracks for Electra to assess before the label would commit to moving forward with them. All the songs Electra needed were completed by early 1995. Weeks passed. No word came from the label. Matthew wasn't having it. He started calling Sylvia, asking what the holdup was. Matthew was of the mind that no one made him or Beyonce wait. But no one rushed the executives at Electra either. The label canceled the deal without hesitation. But Matthew learned his lesson. When Columbia Records came knocking in 1995, he leveraged another label's interest to quickly secure a seven-record deal with Columbia. There was just one issue. The group would need a new name. They abandoned the name Girls' Time years ago and had been cycling through new monikers ever since. First, they became Something Fresh, then The Dolls. Now they went by Destiny, a name Tina Knowles picked from the Bible. But they found out that Destiny was already taken. So they tweaked it, just like Beyonce's parents tweaked the surname Beyonce to make something new. Destiny was calling, and so Destiny's child was born. Beyonce squinted at the page and started from the beginning. She read the article again, slower this time. Her mouth moved silently as she scanned the words. There had to be a mistake. No one could be this mean. Maybe she was reading it wrong? Beyonce could handle negative press. She could handle her haters. But this wasn't just a few jabs at her in a newspaper. This was downright cruel. The article skewered her acting chops in the newest Austin Powers movie, which featured Beyonce in the role of an undercover FBI agent named Foxy Cleopatra, a comic riff on 70s black exploitation movie characters. Her mother, Tina, practically had to pry the newspaper from her daughter's hands. This will keep happening, so you have to accept it and move on, Tina told her. Beyonce sighed. She had thick skin. Or so she thought. Maybe it was just thicker when surrounded by her sisters and Destiny's Child. By the turn of the century, Destiny's Child had taken full command of every radio station and dance floor in America. Their third album, Survivor, was still ringing in the public's ears. You could call it Beyonce's clapback album. She heard those gossiping DJs commenting on her thicker body and comparing the group's shifting lineup to the TV show Survivor. So she turned around and wrote Bootylicious and Survivor to put them in their place. Not only did they have to hear Beyonce call them out, but they had to hear it multiple times a day, every day, when listeners phoned in their request for Destiny's Child. Matthew called the empowering songs part of the group's brand. But those tunes weren't about business. They were about not backing down. Destiny's Child wrote music for independent women. By 2002, the ladies in the group were feeling fairly independent themselves. Beyonce, Kelly Rowland, and Michelle Williams each wanted to see what they were capable of if they went solo. Michelle was the first to branch out. 
she released a contemporary gospel album that peaked at number one on the Billboard gospel charts. Then Kelly teamed up with Nelly for their own number one hit, a rap duet called Dilemma. It topped the charts in the U.S. and nine other countries. Both women boasted their own devoted following, but it was Beyonce who remained the clear leader of the pack. If Kelly and Michelle could achieve Billboard number ones on their first try, then Beyonce basically had her own solo hit in the bag. Which is why everyone was shocked when her debut single flopped. Beyonce didn't just star in Goldmember, the third Austin Powers movie. She recorded an R&B song for the film called Work It Out. Her strategy made perfect sense. After all, Destiny's Child got their first ever hit when Randy Jackson decided to add their song No, No, No to the Men in Black soundtrack. And that was way before Destiny's Child had any name recognition. These days, if you read the newspaper, listened to the radio, or just passed MTV while channel surfing, you knew Destiny's Child. And if you knew Destiny's Child, you knew Beyonce. She didn't even need a last name to distinguish herself. Just like Prince, Madonna, Elvis. These days, it's hard to imagine a time when anything with the name Beyonce attached to it could fly under the radar, let alone flop. But that's exactly what Work It Out did. It flopped. Hard. It didn't go to number one, or crack the top ten, or crack the top 100. Even the R&B charts seemed to reject the song. Its throwback to James Brown era funk was authentic. Maybe too authentic for the early aughts to appreciate. By 2002, Beyonce didn't just have a badly received movie appearance to deal with. She had an underwhelming single to match. She had to plan her next moves carefully. She couldn't afford any more missteps. Her next song would have to be a statement. Distinctive. Fresh. Feisty. She longed to show the world just how much she had grown since the early days of Destiny's Child, when she was just a teenager cutting her teeth in the world of mainstream music. She was a woman now, a proper artist who could hold her own on stage and in the studio. Beyonce spent two days personally interviewing potential collaborators for her upcoming solo work. But as it turns out, the person she picked to hop on her next single didn't need much of an introduction. Jay-Z had been calling Beyonce about a collaboration since 2000. As owner and founder of Rockefeller Records, he was impressed when B stepped into the studio to record a track called I Got That with Rockefeller artist Emil. What Jay-Z heard that day confirmed what he already suspected. He and Beyonce would make a powerful pair. Beyonce's phone started ringing within days of the recording session. Jay-Z wasn't shy. He wanted his own duet with her. Beyonce sat on his offer for two years. It wasn't until Work It Out faltered that Beyonce agreed to make the rap R&B crossover that Jay was after. You ready, B? He says at the top of their first collaboration, a ride-or-die anthem called O3 Bonnie and Clyde. Yes, she finally was. When O3 Bonnie and Clyde shot to number four on the Billboard 100, 
Jay openly credited Beyonce and her pop and R&B fans for the song's popularity. The track performed so well that B and J decided to lay down another cross-genre duet, this time for Beyonce's debut album. They doubled down in the studio and recorded a track called Crazy in Love. The song felt crazy, all right. It boomed with brassy horns and announced itself like a marching band busting down a door. The brazen opening instrumental made Crazy in Love feel like another throwback track, and Beyoncé was well aware of how much of that style didn't work for Work It Out. Even Columbia Records was skeptical. When Beyoncé submitted Crazy in Love along with her completed debut album, they were hesitant to move forward with the release. The failure of Work It Out was too fresh. Columbia told Beyoncé that her debut album didn't have a hit. The public thought otherwise. Crazy in Love clicked with listeners in the summer of 2003 and remained at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for eight consecutive weeks. Crazy in Love wasn't just a hit. It was the hit. The song of 2003. The defining moment not just in Beyonce's early career, but in Jay-Z's career too. Beyonce never came close to riding coattails. Not for 03 Bonnie and Clyde, and certainly not for Crazy in Love. The truth is, Beyonce and Jay-Z exchanged audiences with both collaborations. But it was Jay who got the better end of the bargain. Jay-Z's own fans were loyal, but they were rooted in the hip-hop world. Beyonce, on the other hand, was already ubiquitous in mainstream culture. Their duets lifted Jay-Z to a new level of name recognition, not the other way around. Jay even changed his look and brand to match his newer, bigger fan base. He traded his baggy clothes and ball caps for suits around 2003. That's no coincidence. From that moment forward, Beyonce had a solo career she could develop and rely on. So it was no big deal when Destiny's Child officially parted ways in 2006, quote, while they were still friends. Crazy in Love unquote the waterfall of success for Beyonce, and the accolades kept pouring in. Her 2003 debut record, Dangerously in Love, pulled in three Grammy Awards and 12 million record sales and downloads worldwide. The follow-up, 2005's B-Day brought in another 8 million global record sales, especially thanks to the success of the sassy and self-assured single, Irreplaceable. For her third album, Beyoncé officially introduced the world to Sasha Fierce, her alter ego who often provoked her to get more adventurous on stage. Listeners loved Sasha from the moment she built its single ladies, put a ring on it. Continuing Beyoncé's trend of empowering anthems for women. Her record, I Am, Sasha Fierce, went on to sell 8 million copies and nab 5 more Grammy Awards. Beyoncé's solo musical career was on track to eclipse her Destiny's Child acclaim. Her film career, on the other hand, hadn't made much progress since her role in Goldmember. First, critics crucified her for her appearance in Dreamgirls, just because her co-star Jennifer Hudson outshined her. Wasn't Beyoncé jealous that she was getting the awards? 
the undivided attention? That's what the headlines seemed to insinuate as news outlets across the country pointed out all the ways that Beyonce's performance paled next to Jennifer's. The real hit came when Beyonce accepted the role of Etta James in a 2008 biopic called Cadillac Records. The film was supposed to honor the lives and struggles of musicians like Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Chuck Berry, and of course, Etta James, all through the lens of Chicago's chess records. But all anyone could focus on was how the seemingly perfect Beyonce was the wrong fit to play Etta, a woman whose life was plagued with abandonment, heartache, and addiction. Beyonce was too big a target for critics. Any flaw was pounced upon. Anything less than perfection was painted as a failure. Nobody noted the work, the research that she poured into the role. For weeks, she visited a drug rehabilitation center called Phoenix House to better understand what it was like to struggle with something as harrowing as heroin addiction. The stories of the people she met stayed with Beyonce long after filming wrapped. When she received her $4 million paycheck for Cadillac Records, she donated all of it to Phoenix House to invest in the people who had taught her so much about hardship and perseverance. Years later, she and her mother Tina would go on to fund a cosmetology school at Phoenix House, giving recovering addicts the chance to learn new skills and build a new sober life. Nobody wanted to talk about that. It was so much easier to drag Beyonce through the mud than give her an ounce of credit. That's what sold papers, what drove clicks. Beyonce had even founded a company called Parkwood Entertainment to produce Cadillac Records alongside Sony and TriStar. That hard work went under the radar too. That was fine. Beyonce had bigger plans for Parkwood Entertainment than just Cadillac Records. She had her own ideas about what it meant to make a stunning visual, and she'd reveal it to the world when they least expected it. They told her it was just not possible, that there was a reason it had never been done before. An artist couldn't just drop an album in over 100 countries with the snap of their fingers. No notice, no single. No meticulously planned marketing campaign? Beyonce could afford all of those things. She could make more hype for a new album than nearly any artist on the planet. But hype wasn't what Beyonce was after. By 2013, she felt that the digital era of downloads and streaming had disrupted what used to be an authentic listening experience. People cherry-picked songs instead of surrendering to an album's full story. A holistic piece of art. Some listeners never even bothered to delve beyond the lead single. Beyonce worked too hard to have her own work lost in the pop culture din, overshadowed by flashy marketing campaigns or reduced to a single radio-ready song. She wanted her fans' full attention while her music told its story. And if that meant she had to seize that attention with a surprise album, then so be it. Beyonce visualized her new record falling from the sky and directly into her fans' earbuds. And onto their screens. It was a strategy that could bury an artist's career. 
Most musicians needed advertisements and promotions to chart and move records. It's not that Beyonce thought she was above those kinds of achievements. They just weren't a priority anymore. A true, uninterrupted listening experience was more important to her than any new plaque, trophy, or platinum record. The idea of a surprise drop made the naturally risk-averse label executives downright nauseous. Matthew Knowles, for one, definitely wouldn't allow it. But Matthew Knowles wasn't in the picture anymore. Beyonce was her own boss now. Literally. Parkwood Entertainment had ballooned into something bigger than even she could have imagined. By 2011, Beyonce's company boasted management, digital, production, marketing, and publicity departments. As a joint venture with Columbia Records, Parkwood shared the costs of recorded music production, distribution, and marketing. In turn, Columbia would get a share of the resulting revenues. But Parkwood was fully responsible for their creative execution. The company took artistic direction from one person and one person alone, its president and CEO, Beyonce Knowles Carter. Since the day that Destiny's Child splintered into solo projects, Beyonce had prepared for this moment. She took mental notes when Matthew landed her deals with Tommy Hilfiger, L'Oreal, Samsung, and American Express. She learned from her boyfriend, and now husband, Jay-Z, who was well acquainted with the paperwork and policies that came with running his own company. Beyonce had been in the music business for well over a decade now. She made her own success and her own money. Why should she split it with anyone else? Especially if some people were secretly taking more than their share. Beyonce couldn't believe what she heard. She was silent, stunned. She let the information marinate in her mind. A representative from Live Nation just delivered the bad news. It appeared that Matthew might have been siphoning funds from Beyonce's multi-million dollar I Am world tour. Of course, Matthew denied the accusation when Beyonce confronted him about it. She wanted so badly to believe him. But she wasn't a daughter today. She was a businesswoman. Beyonce hired a firm to conduct an audit of the tour's earnings and distributions, all $119 million of it. While lawyers poured over paperwork, Beyonce braced herself for the worst. She started meeting with Columbia Records in New York City without her father, made decisions without ever looping him in. Maybe she knew in her heart it was time to move on, no matter what the results were. And the results were... Not good. The audit seemed to align with what Live Nation told her. Matthew had been skimming off the top. That wasn't all. Another serious drama played Beyonce's relationship with her father. While Beyonce accepted the Woman of the Year Award from Billboard in 2009, her father was served with a paternity suit over his mistress's child. Right in front of the press and the public, Beyonce had no idea her father was seeing another woman, let alone that he might have another child. Apparently, neither did her mother, Tina, 
who filed for divorce the next month. It was time for Beyonce to cut the cord too. I have only parted ways with my father on a business level, she wrote in a statement to the press in March of 2011. He is my father for life, and I love my dad dearly. I'm grateful for everything he has taught me. Matthew shared his own statement the next day and claimed that the decision was mutual. But the truth was, his own daughter fired him. Beyonce didn't have to say that she suddenly felt free. You could hear it in her music. Her first album without Matthew as her manager and executive producer veered into completely new territory. She kept the title succinct and called it Four, a nod to it being her fourth album and favorite number. But nothing else about Four was simple. The album presented Beyonce without compromise. If she longed to try on a new sound or a new style, Four made it work. Beyonce used the album to stir up a pot of 70s and 90s R&B, pure rock, and raunchy horns. She lost herself in lush ballads, bounced on the dance floor to big band beats and seductive slow jams. Instead of slinky pop, she marched to the beat of thunderous chants, like on the lead single, Run the World. It sounded like she was singing in the middle of a rigorous drill just like she did as a girl training for her days in Destiny's Child. Except this time around, Beyonce was the drill sergeant and the soldier. Her skill set was all-encompassing. She was the artist, lyricist, entrepreneur, president, and producer. Beyonce killed off that alter ego of her, Sasha Fierce. She didn't need another name to feel confident anymore. She was the boss now. Even better. She was Beyonce. That would be the title of her new record. One word, just Beyonce. Because Beyonce needed to remind the world just what she was capable of. And that included the impossible. December 12th, 2013, 11.59 p.m. No one knew what was coming. Not the radio stations. Not MTV or Rolling Stone. Not major retailers like Target or Walmart, who usually stocked up on CDs in preparation for the impending rush of sales. Only Apple was in the know. Parkwood delivered the album files to iTunes a few days in advance to ingest them into their software, where the album would be exclusively available. There would be no physical copies in the beginning. That posed the risk of a manufacturing employee leaking the music online. And no one was hearing this album a moment before Beyonce wanted them to. Then the clock struck midnight. Fans in 119 countries simultaneously saw the iTunes store transform into mini Beyonce billboards. Perfectly timed Facebook and Instagram posts broke the news to people scrolling social media. Beyonce's new album had arrived. And it wasn't just an album. It was a visual album. With Parkwood Entertainment, Beyonce organized the surprise release of 14 new tracks and 18 new videos, all kept completely under wraps until that special night in December. Under normal circumstances, making five music videos could take up to 18 months. 
Beyonce filmed one dozen of those 18 videos in just a 12-week period while she was on tour. Her team completed the last video in mid-November, barely a month before the full album dropped. Beyonce, the album, changed everything overnight. Visual albums, not even a thing before, were hot. Surprise drops were even hotter. Worrying about singles and chart placement suddenly seemed passé. Other artists might fret and scheme over how they were going to get their next number one. Beyonce just wanted to experiment. She already had all the acclaim she needed. That didn't stop more praise from pouring in immediately. Even without physical sales, without any warning, and without a single to tempt fans, Beyonce debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 that December. It became the fastest-selling album in the history of iTunes, with 1.3 million copies sold in just 17 days. The record executives were right. A surprise drop couldn't be done until someone like Beyonce made the blueprint. By the end of 2013, Beyonce was in full control, not only of her music, but of her brand and business strategies. Her vision for her career was as clear as her pristine vocal tone. But not even Beyonce could prepare for what was coming next. Beyoncé ended 2013 on a high note that was unprecedented. She had already been on a fast track to icon status, but her self-titled record sped up her journey to the upper echelon of music stardom. She finished 2013 with millions of records out the door and $230 million in the bank from a worldwide tour. Her career was blowing up, and so was her personal life. The trouble with being an icon is that everyone knows everything about you. Everything. Everybody and their mother saw the video. You know the one. The grainy security footage of Beyonce's sister Solange taking swipes at Jay-Z in an elevator at the Met Gala while Beyonce watches wordlessly. Old rumors return to haunt the couple who now shared six years of marriage. The public had obsessed over Jay-Z's supposed infidelity since 2005, when the tabloids caught wind that he hooked up with the new Rockefeller artist named Rihanna. Of course, that was a fabricated story, carefully planted in the right place at the right time to get more eyes on Rihanna's debut single, Ponder Replay. For better or worse, the PR tactic worked. But this video? No. This was not planned. Speculation heated up again. Whispers spread that Jay-Z had cheated on Beyonce for real this time. Then whispers gave way to loud headlines, posts and retweets, memes and public mockery of the situation. The image was unavoidable. The infamous elevator video burned into the public's consciousness. What they needed, Beyonce thought, was a new visual to focus on. There she is, the queen herself, skipping down the street in a vibrant yellow dress, swinging a baseball bat to shatter the windows of classic cars. Glass flies, water gushes from a broken fire hydrant into the street. Kids frolic underneath the streams of water. And Beyonce smiles. 
The visual is a release, an exclamation of both rage and freedom. Beyonce titled the scene, Hold Up. It's the second story the fans find themselves totally immersed in when they sit down with Lemonade, Beyonce's 2016 album. Lemonade was how Beyonce spilled the tea in explicit terms, two years after the elevator incident. Yes, her husband cheated on her. Yes, it hurt like hell for her, just like it would hurt anyone else. And if people were really gonna keep talking about it, they should have the full picture. That's what Lemonade was, the full picture. Beyonce followed one iconic visual album with another. Lemonade braided modern R&B with spoken word poetry to create a vivid tapestry of denial, reformation, and redemption. It wasn't just the story of her and Jay-Z and the alleged Becky with the good hair who came between them. It's a story of Black women, a story of modern feminism and generational trauma, of history repeating itself, and of infidelity, the wounds it inflicts, the scars it's left upon the artist herself as a child, teenager, adult, and mother. Jay-Z wasn't the only man to wound her. Beyonce's preteen crush and first boyfriend, Lindale Locke, two-timed her before she was famous and after she was famous. She had seen the fallout of infidelity since she was a little girl, when Matthew's affairs colored her childhood. His cheating literally split her family into two homes, only for her parents to reconcile down the line and divorce when Matthew repeated the same mistakes decades later. Now Beyonce's own husband had adopted the same unfaithful behavior. But this relationship was different. Beyonce wasn't quitting. Beyonce knew what she and Jay had was real. Lemonade is a story of anguish and fury, true. But it's also a testament to the power of reconciliation. By the time the world drank in Lemonade's visuals, she and Jay were on the path to healing. They had the art to prove it. Two years later, they released a collaborative album poignantly titled Everything is Love. Then they joined hands and took the story of their love on the road, earning over $253 million with their On the Run 2 world tour. B and J were better than good again. They were unbreakable. But this isn't about Jay-Z. It's not even about the Carters, one of their most established power couples in music. And it's not about Matthew Knowles. This is about Beyonce, a businesswoman who refused to be bullied into abandoning her creative vision, an experimental thinker in the recording studio, boardroom, and video set, an unparalleled storyteller in both music and film, the woman who's performed under a thousand titles from Girls' Time to Sasha Fierce, but still only needs one name to get your attention and make history. This is About a Girl. About a Girl is produced by Scott Janovitz and executive produced by Jake Brennan and Grady Sattler for Double Elvis. The show was created by Eleanor Wells and hosted by me, Nikki Lynette. 
This episode was written by Victoria Waslet. For sources used in this episode, go to aboutagirlpod.com. Music by Scott Janovitz and Matt Tahaney, with additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. The show is on Instagram at aboutagirlpod, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Nikki Lynette.